In the world of recruiting, some people have seen it all. They built recruiting teams from the ground up, hired hundreds of people in the best companies in the world, developed their expertise year after year. I'm Robin Choi, and I'm on a mission to collect their learnings. These are their stories. Hello, everybody, and hello, Matt. Hi. Nice to be here. <laughs> well, very welcome to have you here today, Matt. We're going to be talking about how to product the future, nothing less, especially applied to recruiting. Uh, so Matt, you're Matt Alder. Uh, we can follow you on LinkedIn and we can also listen to your podcast, Recruiting Future Podcast, where you recorded an impressive 544 episodes to date. So congrats for this. Like, uh, you. like the appreciate the work ethics. Um, and I'm, I'm getting there. I'm catching up. <laughs> and we decided to talk today about the topic of the future of recruiting, but not only the future of recruiting, but also how to predict the future more generally. We're at a shift in recruiting. There's lots of things happening, new technologies. There is a market shift as well, like it used to be a candidate market. No, is it anymore? So lots of people are just in the a bit in the woods, don't know where to go, what will future look like, and we'll try and not so much share our opinions on what the future will look like, because we do have opinions as well, but rather how we came to form those opinions, what kind of frameworks you can use, what kind of reference you can use in the past. So that's what we're trying to cover today in 30 minutes. So that's very ambitious, and we hope to give a good recipe to the audience. Where do you want to start, Matt? Because I know that you give a lot of thoughts about predicting the future, thinking about the future. So how do we start with that like very horny and complicated topic? Yeah, I mean, I think we should start with the whole concept of predicting the future. So there's a real contradiction here because to say it completely upfront, it is impossible to accurately predict the future. So, you know, that is an impossibility. If that wasn't impossible, then the world would be a different place. However, the issue is if you're in, well, for everyone, but particularly in the, the context of what we're talking about today, if you're in a leadership position within talent acquisition, you have to predict the future because you have to make longer term plans. You have to understand the implications of some of the things that are going on with, with technology at the moment and all that kind of stuff. So it's a very, very difficult position because it's impossible, but it has to happen. So you have to kind of make your best guess. Now, what's interesting on my podcast, at the end of every episode, I always ask people for their predictions on the future. Now, up until about January 2020, the predictions people made were very confident. They were very confident about what they were saying. As soon as the pandemic hit, there was this sense that, well, we can't predict the future because the unexpected has come from nowhere and turned everything upside down. And since then, when I asked people that, there were a lot more caveats about, you know, not being able to predict well, what's going to happen next week and all those kind of things. You can actually look back and say, well, the pandemic was that, that actually was predictable. But then we kind of get into something called hindsight bias, which we might, we might sort of talk about a bit later. So it's an impossible position. So we, we have to look forward to the future because we need to plan in the future. And there's a real competitive edge to this because the individuals and the companies who, who plan most accurately for the future will be the most successful in achieving their objectives. So it's something that we have to do and we have to kind of build models of thinking to do that. So, you know, we sort of mentioned what's our best guess and it's like, how do we get to that? What's the scaffolding we put around that mentally 
to get to the point where we have a good chance of being right. So it's impossible. We have to do it. People are, so you mentioned inside bias. There is a lot of biases. And when it comes to predicting the future is basically making decisions. Like how do we make decisions based on the information that we have? And if we predict the future right, we'll make better decisions on average. But people have a lot of biases. So that's covered by a lot of literature as well. There's one book that I like a lot. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow about like biases, decision-making biases. One example is how people are bad at predicting estimates. Like this project will be complete in two years, three years. People tend to know that everybody fails to meet estimates, but still make over optimistic estimates as well. Or the other thing that people tend a lot to do is to give a lot of weight to events that happened recently. So for instance, there is a very good example, which is you take a kid that's seven years old, super smart, knows how to read, knows how to write. What's their estimated grades, average grade when they're 20? And people will tend to translate that information to, well, if they're smart when they're seven, there will be probably a 18 out of 20 when they're older. They'll stay smart. But actually, there is lots of things happening in between. And you need to take that into account over the course of like 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's lots of chaos. There are lots of things that people don't take into account. And you're right. I think some of that is some of that is bias in terms of the lenses that people look at things through, which is unavoidable. You know, everyone's got their own take for various reasons. In some ways, there are patterns in what we do, but we look for those patterns. And in many ways, it's chaotic. So, so yeah, it's a difficult thing to do, but we have to do it. So that's the, that's the thing. All right. And then, so how do we do it? What kind of frameworks can we use? There is two conflicting things here. Back to Daniel Kahneman in the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, what he says is basically when you take a person at 20, they are likely to be in the average, like anyone more likely to be in the average. So things that are expected to happen are supposed to happen. Even if the kid was super smart when he was a kid, when he'll grow up, he'll probably revert to the average. That's what's more probable. So there are all things that we know will happen. There are things that are probable. Everybody talks about those things that will happen. And then those things that we believe will never happen and they still happen. Like the pandemic is a good example, though. We can say that some people predicted it. So how do we play with both? And when it's applied to recruiting, what are the trends that we see and we're pretty much, okay, this is going to happen because this is a deep trend that has been happening over the past five years and it'll keep going this way. Yeah, I'll kind of talk you through I talked you the kind of the levels of this. Before I get into that, I think the most important thing, and I've kind of learned this through my career in terms of dealing with, you know, technology and trying to predict which ones are going to stick and change recruiting and help people through that journey, is you have to be ruthlessly open-minded about things. And I think that one of the issues that perhaps we have in our industry is there are some fundamentals around recruiting that haven't changed for hundreds of years. Tens of years, hundreds of years. And there are things that we take for granted all the time. And sometimes you have to question some of those very deep held assumptions to be truly open minded. So I think that's the thing that sits around all of this. What would be those assumptions, for instance? So, I mean, some of the classic ones are around work in general. We think that we should work an eight hour day. Well, I know it works an eight hour day, but an eight hour day is what gets written down. We think we should work five days a week. 
And also there was this prevailing thought that people should be back in the office because that's where they work best. Now, you can break all those down into some very specific assumptions about the eight-hour day was invented by a British industrialist in the 19th century, I think. And it was like eight hours work, eight hours, eight hours work, eight hours leisure, eight hours rest. You know, and that was revolutionary at the time. That was that was to give the workers a better employee experience. Five-day week, popularized by Henry Ford in his factories. All these kind of things that, you know, we take for granted. So, well, that's the way it should always be. And if you just look at it, at the moment in the UK, there's a big debate about four-day weeks. So there's been a successful trial of four-day weeks from a number of companies whose productivity has gone up. It's been great for them. But now they're trying to sort of take that argument to a bigger market and you're just hit by, well, no, 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 people need to work five days. And it's just like, why? And it's asking that why about some of these things. Because that's what we always did. I think that's the overarching kind of state of mind that you need to be in. But as you said, I think the first thing is that let's focus on the things that are very likely to happen. So, you know, that's always the first stage for me. So, you know, some examples from where we are, we know that change is going to get faster because it has. And since the pandemic has just gone into overdrive and we can reasonably expect that that is going to continue. You know, there may be factors that stop that, but I think it's a reasonable assumption to say that things will change quickly and quicker in the future. I think we're looking at a shorter time between leaps forward. So if we kind of look back over the, come back to history in a second, but if we look back over the last sort of 10, 20 years of recruiting, we've had the internet, we've had social media, we've had cloud computing, we've had mobile, you know, the mobile internet, you know, all these things have happened and they've happened in quite a short space of time, but the gaps between those big advances have got smaller. Mm -hmm. And now we have generative AI and there's a sense that, that can, that's already leaping forward very, very quickly. So shorter time. The other thing is rising expectations from candidates in terms of what a great experience looks like. And we can feel that because in everything that we do, particularly what we do digitally, we expect this seamless digital experience. And in many industries, that gets better and better and better and better. And recruiting doesn't necessarily keep up with that. So, you know, rising expectations, rising expectations from stakeholders, from business leaders from C-suite, all those CEOs that are currently looking deep into their business to say, how is generative AI going to drive value for my business and what are the implications? That's going to keep happening. And also from a talent perspective, we've got this continuing skills crisis. So we've got, I was just literally just talking to someone about this before I kind of jumped on the podcast in terms of they're thinking about the types of people they need to recruit for their business in five years time and where those skills, where those skills are coming from. And with technology and industry moving so quickly, the people who are currently in jobs in their career or coming through education won't have the right skills. So we know that, and we can look back, we can look back to in 10 years time, the people in the workforce, they're all currently at school now. We can see what they're learning. So from that perspective, we can predict what skills are going to be in the workforce in 10 years time and look at that mismatch. So, you know, that's there. And then the other thing I think is more more automation. I think automation is inevitable. We're seeing automation in everything that we everything that we do. And to say that we won't have automation at scale in recruitment because it's a human business and we always we always need humans and all this kind of stuff. It's not going to hold. Yes, it is a human business and there is a massive role for humans and we do that, but we're going to have to really rethink that because automation is inevitable. There's me saying nothing. <laughs> you can't predict the future and nothing's inevitable. But I think that's a kind of good one. So, yeah, I mean, they're the things that I think we can say 
with some certainty are going to happen and going to going to shape the way that we we have to think of the next five or ten years. What I like is you're not saying this is going to happen. It's just there is some certainty. Like when you when you roll a die, you know that there is a one over six chance that it falls on the one. So it's exactly the same here. It's not like this is going to happen and this is not going to happen, but rather this is very likely to happen. Like this is a 90% chances that this will happen. This is probably unlikely, but that might happen as well. So you, And then you can prepare for things that are unlikely, but have a huge impact, like the pandemic, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a scale of things that you can do. It's kind of, um, you need to know the direction that you're traveling in, but you need to be, for using a word that's very much overused, you need to be agile enough to change that direction very, very quickly. And it's the same with thinking as well. I mean, I kind of experienced this firsthand in the early days of the internet, the early days of the internet in recruitment, not the early days of the internet. That was a long time ago, you know, because we would believe that one thing was going to happen and this is this is what's happening. And then someone would invent something the next day and everything you believed the previous day was now not true. And you just have to get used to that, that type of thinking. And I think actually the pandemic has perhaps opened people's minds to thinking like that because, you know, none of us were expecting, you know, what happened to, to happen. And we're still, still seeing the consequences of it in lots of different ways. And I think that, you know, we're going to need some hindsight in 10 years time to, to actually look back and say what it did change and what it did drive. I think it's impossible to do that at the moment. So yeah, that kind of elasticity of, of thinking is, is, is very important. So I just want to make a quick pause and sum up everything you said about what's likely to happen. And I see a few buckets. The first one is the, it has to do with agility, fast changes. So there are the short terms and leaps forwards. One good example that people always use is the adoption, like adoption curve. Uh, the automobile, it took 40 years between invention to 20% of the population having an automobile. Uh, internet, it was five years. Touchability was like days or months. So it's getting faster. Things change. That also implies a continuous skills crisis with companies needing to think five years ahead of time. And people are so adapting because people need to learn new skills to stay up to speed because things are changing so fast. So that's one part. The other part that I see is the rising expectations, both from the candidates and the hiring managers. Uh, we want more transparency, more information, and that's probably not going to go anywhere. Uh, so that's staying. And then the third big bucket that I see is the automation, technology. Technology will continue to change. Well, whether you want it or not, there will be more automation. So how do we make it also more human? Uh, how do we keep that in line with also the rising expectations from the candidates? Is that right? Like, would you agree that there are these three big buckets and we know these three directions? Again, that's not going to happen, but that has been happening and that's a very likely at least to keep on happening? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a good way of looking at it. I, I think you raise an interesting point there when you're talking about the, the adoption and how quickly it's happening. There's another thing to this, which again is, is about looking at some of the trends. Whenever anything like this happens, so ChatGPT is a classic example. So, you know, it appeared to come from nowhere. Obviously, it had been a bit evolved for, um, for some time, but it appeared to come from nowhere. And then the world just went mad. You know, I was, people were telling me that we'd all be out of a job by the, you know, by the early summer. And, you know, it was just literally the world was going to change overnight. Now, that hasn't happened. And it was never going to happen because that's hype. 
that's people jumping on a bandwagon to to get noticed. That's noise. That's not that's not signal. And I think that sometimes we listen to that noise and make decisions based on that. And then when that doesn't happen, so you know, I'm not sure that ChatGP has displaced huge parts of the working population by by the early summer as predicted. When that doesn't happen, there's a temptation to say, "Well, it's fine. That's, you know, this is just a this is just a fad. This is this is not going to affect us." Well, actually, the opposite is true because we now need to think about, well, actually, what can generative AI do for us right now, practically, and how do we do that? But also, what's it going to be like in a year's time? What's it going to be like in two years' time? And I think getting to the detail and talking to people who are actually building it and understanding that is really important because that's where the real skill is. And I think chat GPT, I find it quite amusing because there's a kind of real push to like, what, and we need to learn 9 million prompts overnight. And if you're not learning, if you're not this, this brilliant at writing chat GPT prompts, then your career's over. And it's like, well, actually writing prompts on chat, it's difficult. It spits out lots of random nonsense. And I don't know about you, but I can tell when people have written a LinkedIn post using because of the way it, the way it structures work. Yeah. However, if we look at how that large language model technology is being integrated into into other things and used by some of the vendors in our space, that's really interesting. So I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying people shouldn't learn about it, but sometimes you've got to be very careful about what you focus on because it's like, will you still need to type in prompts manually in a year's time? Or will that be automated or part of something you do or in the background? If so, do you really need to spend hours and hours learning learning how to how to do it? Now, if you're getting value from it, then then absolutely. But might you not be better off learning about how it's built and how it's going to develop in the future? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to take a step back and try to understand all the intricacies and how the thing is built instead of just understanding how to operate it, basically, because the machine might change. Yeah, absolutely. I bet this is going to really date me as being very old, but... I remember at school, we did um, the sort of first year at high school, we did computer studies. It was very exciting, which consisted of a teacher sitting at the front with a computer telling us, making us learn off by heart the inner workings of the computer, mm-hmm. because that was important. And actually, you know, by the time I got to the, the end of high school, they were teaching kids how to do, how to use Word and write word processing and all that kind of stuff. That was a skill that we we needed, not understanding what chip was connected to this that and the other which is which is interesting but that was not the skill that the majority of people needed now you know i actually went to school with some people who ended up going on to build computers so it was obviously very relevant to them but it's kind of where yeah what what is the skill that we actually need from this leap forward in technology so back to predicting the future there is another thing that's often said about predicting the future is looking at the past like look at those anything that happened before so in recruiting, there has been innovation, obviously, but even when we prepared that that episode, we went as far as the the industrial revolution, the gold rush, uh, the history of the like British Empire. So there, like, you can always look at what happened before, and history tends sometimes to repeat itself, but also tends not. Like, so how do you play with it? Yeah. Where should we look at? What's your recommendation? Yeah, so I think that you know there are patterns that you can look at in the past. So particularly in our industry, how have new technologies come along? How have they been adopted? Again, there is a, an aspect to this that sometimes people look back and go, "Oh, well, that turned up," and I'm like, you know, I'm, this came along and 
everyone said I'd be out of a job and it would be the end of recruiting as we know it. But here we are, we're still here. And sometimes you don't actually think about how much has actually changed. Mm -hmm. So email, spreadsheets, you know, data analytics, all these kind of things, you know, you can look at this kind of parade of innovations that fundamentally changed how we work and what we do. Zoom, for another example, you know, for another example. And you can kind of look back and go, no, 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 I'm still doing the same thing that I was doing 10, 25, 10, 20 years ago. And that's absolutely not. So I think that's, you know, that's part of it. So I, I think one of the things that we can say is it takes a very long time for technology to get adopted in our industry. And um, adoption always ha happens a lot slower than the, the cutting edge startup vendors think it's going to. And there are lots of reasons for that. It's not just about not wanting to change. It's about being a really complex industry with lots of moving parts and lots of stakeholders and all of these, all of these kind of things. But we know that, you know, that is slow. So I think that potentially is the opportunity because if we go back to what we were saying earlier about things are moving quicker and expectations from you know, CEOs and CFOs and, and all these people are going to are massively increasing as our expectations from candidates, there is an opportunity for people who can move quickly. And it's moving quickly with the, the caveats that I've just said about not getting caught up in the moment, but actually thinking, where are we going to be? Where is this going to be in two years time? And what do we need now? So I think there's a big opportunity there because we know that as an industry, we move, we move very slowly. And I think we'll be forced to move quickly. And that's already happening. And it's kind of being prepared for that, I think, is the, is the lesson that we can learn from, from history. And so that would be probably my final question is how do we prepare for, well, both what we know will happen and what's likely to happen and also what's unlikely to happen. But if it happens, then we're screwed, like the pandemic, for instance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it kind of sums up everything that we were talking about in terms of that flexibility of thinking. I think the first thing is people need to design their teams and their processes and their, their ways of working to adapt quickly. So, you know, we can't have four-year-long tech implementations anymore and, you know, all this taking, taking ages to change. So I think that building in the ability to move quickly is probably the most, the most important part of that. I think the other thing is really this thing about noise versus signal. So looking at the market, looking at all that noise around technology, around skills, around assessments, that all that stuff that's out there, it's de developing the ability or working with someone who has that ability to cut through that and actually find out where is my truth in this? What is it that's going to affect me that, you know, going to affect me the most if I cut through all that stuff? So I think that's a real ability that, you know, that's what people can learn as well. I don't think it's, it's, a not, it's not some kind of gift that people have. It's, it's just looking objectively and open-mindedly at things, challenging your own assumptions and biases and, and really trying to pick out what's really changing here. And also looking for evidence. It's kind of like, well, who's adopted this already? What results are they getting? You know, that kind of thing. And then I think the other thing is that there are areas that do predict the future of our industry. So I think if we look elsewhere in the enterprise, um, particularly when it comes to AI, if you look at how marketing, sales and finance are adopting these, these tools, they tend to adopt them quicker than HR and recruiting. So there's a blueprint right there. What are, you know, what are marketing, what are the marketing department doing with, with this technology? What can we learn from them? 
you know, what's this industry doing with this technology that isn't our industry, but we can maybe learn some stuff from that industry. So I think there are adjacent, there's adjacency everywhere that can really help us understand what's going to come, what's going to come next. So what do you think about, there is something that you mentioned. So building the ability to move quickly is the most important part, how to be agile. How do you do this in, in practice? And what do you think about training in an era where things change so fast? How do we make sure that we're constantly trained? Is it through, I don't know, like buying actual trainings? Is it reading? Is it listening to podcasts? So we're going to probably uh, say that it's a bit of podcasts. Well, I think listening to, listening to podcasts is the key part <laughs> of all of this. I mean, it's a big question. It's one that I'm, I'm working through at the moment. So I'm going to have some more thoughts on this in the future. So if people listen to our podcast, then can, I, can, I can share those. I think it's kind of all of those things. I think, you know, it's training, it's reading, it's understanding, but also a lot of it is about how you organize your information. So, you know, having a system whereby um, you can capture things and save things and come back to them, I think is a really important part of that. Personally, I use a system called Second Brain which there's a book on it called Building a Second Brain, which is a, which is, it's changed the way I do everything, which is brilliant in terms of how you capture and retrieve information when there's just too much of it for your brain and traditional purposes. So that book is my top tip, Building a Second Brain. And um, yeah, I, I think it's all of those things, but especially podcasts. Yeah. And especially recruiting future. So we'll keep on following you. Uh, thanks a lot, Matt. That's again, Matt Alder, A-L-D-E-R for people to follow you on LinkedIn because you post on LinkedIn as well. And the podcast is Recruiting Future. Thank you very much. Hey there, this is Robert. Most of our listeners come from word of mouth. So thanks a lot for your support. And if you enjoy the players, please keep on sharing it with your team and friends. Stay tuned for the next episode. And if you can't wait, follow me on LinkedIn for more content on recruiting. Talk to you next week.